So this evening, we continue our study of the truth of God's Word as it's summarized for us in the Canons of Dort, looking at Articles 11 and 12. But I'd like to read with you two brief passages from the Gospels first. The first coming from Matthew 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, known as the Beatitudes, and then turning over to Luke chapter 10. Matthew chapter 5, the Apostle writes, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then turning to Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 17, going through verse 22. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven." In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Now, in our Canons of Dort, and if you'd like to read along, you can find this in our Forms and Prayers book, page 261. Um, we have been talking about God's decree of election. How he set apart from before time all those who would be saved in Christ. Decreeing not only to set them apart for himself, but to do everything necessary to bring them to salvation and to preserve them in that salvation. And we're looking at Articles 11 and 12, where we confess just as God himself is most wise, unchangeable, all-knowing and almighty, so the election made by him can neither be suspended nor altered, revoked or annulled. Neither can his chosen ones be cast off nor their number reduced. Assurance of this, their eternal and unchangeable election to salvation, is given to the chosen in due time, though by various stages and in differing measure. 
Such assurance comes not by inquisitive searching into the hidden and deep things of God, but by noticing within themselves with spiritual joy and holy delight the unmistakable fruits of election pointed out in God's Word, such as a true faith in Christ, a childlike fear of God, a godly sorrow for their sins, a hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so on. Amen. Beloved congregation chosen in Christ, how solid is the foundation of your faith? Most of you know that I, many of you know at least, that I occasionally write a question and answer column in Christian Renewal magazine. A recent question asked me to explain why some folks raised in Reformed churches refuse to partake of the Lord's Supper even though they're professing members of their church. Now, of course, many people abstain on occasion because they recognize that they've been giving in to their temptations to sin or they perceive that there's some sort of disagreement, disharmony within their relationships. And so they abstain until they have renewed their devotion to the Lord or until they have worked out that disagreement in their relationships. But the writer wasn't asking about those. He was writing about those who've made profession of their faith and yet consistently they don't come to partake. They don't accept the bread and the wine. They hold back mainly out of fear. And really that's what's driving them, is fear, doubt. They fear that perhaps their faith is not real enough. They fear that perhaps God's promises are not for them. They fear that they are not among the elect for whom Christ died. They believe what the Bible says. That Jesus came fully God and fully man to live the perfect life, to die as the perfect sacrifice for the sins of God's people. That he rose again from the dead and ascended to heaven where he rules over all things for the good of his people. That he's coming again to judge the living and the dead and to make all things new. They believe that and they long to be God's people, but they fear That perhaps they have done something that's not forgivable, or perhaps their faith is not significant enough, or you name it. They fear, they doubt. They doubt whether they could really belong to the Lord. Well, here's the thing. There is not one person in this room who is worthy of God, in and of themselves. There is not one person in this room who walks a life of unbroken faith and absolute devotion. We don't. We don't. Not in this life. There is nothing in us that deserves God's gift of salvation. Our hearts at times are quite dark. And so insofar as we trust in ourselves, we are without hope. But that is the glorious truth of the word that we've read here. That we 
need not, must not, cannot trust in ourselves. And if we refuse to trust in ourselves, but trust instead in Christ, despite our weakness, despite our unworthiness, we have no need to fear. And there is no greater gift that God has given to man than that. The promise that we have no need to fear because we have been given Christ. Despite our absolute unworthiness, despite our weakness and our darkness. And we can be confident that we are in Christ. Now we're going to see that in a few of the sections of the canons that we look at, but it starts tonight. And this evening we see that the fruits of salvation reveal God's sure decree of salvation. And there's two parts to that. The first is that that decree of salvation is sure. It's certain. It's something on which we can rest. And the second is that we can be confident that it belongs to us. Now we can't be sure with regard to others, but each one of us can be confident with regard to ourselves. But we're going to start not there, but in the nature of this decree, the certainty of this decree from God as a decree established by the Father from eternity. You see, this section of the canons provides a biblical answer to a couple of errors. And the first error that it addresses is whether the decree of God in election is firm. Because back when the canons were written, and this isn't just an ancient problem because we find this in churches today, there was the idea, there were a few different ideas that election was changeable alterable, that you could truly be saved and therefore truly be elect for a time, but then fall away and no longer be elect, or that you could be elect to be part of the church, but, but not necessarily elect to belong to God. There were all kinds of these errors, but what they came down to, my friends, is the idea that God can't be trusted. See, the Bible is very clear that election is from eternity. And so if a person can be elect for a time, only later to fall away, then, then God's decree can't be trusted. Whether that means that, that He decreed that we would enjoy the fruits of election just for a limited time, or that He decrees that this is one that I think will turn to me, but it turns out that they turn away later and he doesn't actually know. That means that we can't really trust God. But that's not what the Bible shows us. The Bible is very clear. Jesus says, for instance, in John 6, that all who come to him will be saved and none will be cast out. He says in John 6, verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. That's his promise. That's his guarantee. That those who come to him, in fact, he says in verse 44, none can come to him unless they are drawn by the Father. And that word for drawn is a, a strong word. It's the word you would use to talk about 
dragging a net filled with fish onto the sea or onto the, the shore, or removing someone who was unwelcome from a place against their will. It's a, a strong word. And Jesus says that if, if you are drawn, you will come. And if you come, you will not be cast off. You will not be lost. That's his promise. And God says in Isaiah 46 that his counsel will stand. His purposes will be accomplished. And so if it is his purpose to save the elect, then what he's saying is that none of them will be lost. And in fact, Jesus rejoiced before the Lord in John 17 that none of those given to him had been lost to that point except for Judas who was ordained to fall away. So that means, brothers and sisters, that we can be confident that God's decree of election will stand firm. And we can be confident of that both because of what he says and because of the very nature of God himself. See, God's character is important because his Actions and his decrees always reflect his character, just like our actions and our decrees reflect our character. And what does Scripture show us about God? Well, it shows us that God is, as our confession says, most wise. As Paul sings in Romans 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways! The wisdom of God surpasses the wisdom of the wisest and smartest man. He knows absolutely every fact, every event, every purpose and plan, and he knows them all in the light of all the others. In other words, he knows things comprehensively. So when he decrees something, he takes all of that into account. Further, Scripture shows that God is unchangeable. Even the pious pagan prophet Balaam confessed that. He said in Numbers 23, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? So if God establishes a decree, it is certain to come to pass. God also reveals himself as all-knowing. Psalm 44 says that he knows the secrets of the heart. Romans 8 verse 29 says that he foreknew all of the elect. So nothing that we do, nothing that occurs will surprise God. And furthermore, the Bible tells us that God is almighty. He spoke and the world came into being. He decreed the rise and the fall of every single nation. There is nothing that can thwart His purposes, nothing that can overcome His plan. That is the character of our God, most wise, unchangeable, all-knowing, almighty. And we can be sure that His decree of election will reflect His perfectly good and sovereign character. Because God is most wise and almighty, then His election can't be suspended. Those whom He chooses to be elect... He will bring to the fullness of salvation. Those whom He begins to save, He will invariably complete that salvation. Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 6, I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And because God is unchangeable, that decree can't be altered. Even when we fail him, God never fails us. Malachi 3 verse 6 says, I the Lord do not change, therefore you are not consumed. And because God is all-knowing and almighty, his election decree can't be revoked or annulled. Romans 11 verse 29 says that the gift and the calling of God are irrevocable. 
God doesn't change his mind. He doesn't turn back. He doesn't say, nope, I made a mistake. Never mind what I said to you. He never says it. And what that means is that if God in eternity decided to save someone, then we know that he will not fail to bring them all the way to salvation. We can be confident in him. And that holds true for every one of the elect. Before time began, God chose a precise number of specific individuals who would belong to him. And every last one will be found in the new heavens and the new earth. Every one of them will come to recognize the ugliness of their sin. Every one of them will come to understand the gospel. Every one of them will put their trust in Christ, will be cleansed from their sin, will be sanctified and purified and ultimately perfected. Jesus assures us of that in Matthew 24. In that chapter, his disciples begin by marveling at the beauty of the temple courts. And he says, you know what? Not a stone is going to remain on another. There's going to come a terrible time of persecution and judgment. And they marvel at that. And they ask him for details. And he gives them some. He tells them that a time of persecution is coming. Very soon, in fact. And in fact, that terrible persecution and, and upheaval and judgment would typify the, the age to come. And he says that Satan and those who serve him will seek to lead astray even the elect, but he also says it's not possible. They will seek it, they will desire it, they will long to destroy those whom God has chosen, but it is impossible because those elect are protected and preserved by God himself. And that's perfectly reasonable. That's what we should expect after all. As Romans 8, uh, 32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How will he fail to give us exactly what we need to preserve us from anyone or anything that stands against us if he loved us enough to send his son to die for us? My friends, there is an amazing comfort in that knowledge. Because this world swarms with evil people and evil situations who would steal from you your hope. The enemies of God cannot stand to think of you having the comfort they lack. And so they will do whatever they can to undermine your confidence. And so too will the wicked team of Satan and your old nature. Satan despises the idea that you might worship anyone but him. And your old nature delights in the rebellion that, that once enslaved it. And so these two will plant doubts in your heart, pointing out your sin and your weakness and your unworthiness, making you seem worthless in your own eyes. They'll tell a host of lies to you about you and even about God. But God is greater than the enemies who strive to possess you. As Jesus said in John 6, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given, it, given to me, but raise it up on the last day. And in John 10, he says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them from my Father's hand. What comfort! to know that our salvation rests entirely in the hand of God. It doesn't depend on my strength, my worthiness, my knowledge, my anything. It doesn't depend on me. Hear that well. Your salvation does not depend on you. 
As though it's a team effort between you and God. As though you have to meet Him halfway. As though you have to meet a minimum threshold of goodness. No. It depends entirely on God who chooses, God who calls, God who saves. And not on us. We need that confidence. Because we aren't worthy. And the people around us aren't trustworthy. But God is. And Satan wants to fill you with doubt. He wants you to look in the mirror and see how unworthy you are and say, could anyone be any different? Can you really trust? Well, we can. We can really trust in God. But then the question arises, how can I know that's for me? How can I know that this absolutely certain salvation is meant for me? And there's two ways we can know that. One is objective, one is subjective. Now we're going to come back to the objective later and see the subjective tonight. But, but before we do that, we need to recognize that it is possible to know that God meant this for you. To know that you yourself are one of the elect. I often joke with my catechism students, we can't tell about the election of anyone else. There's, there's no little tattoo with an E for elect or an R for reprobate, right? But for ourselves, we can know that. And we know that because of what God says repeatedly in His Word. For instance, what we read in Luke 10, in verse 20, Jesus says, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, the spirits being subject to them was something they could see, something they could perceive, something they could know. And so too, by analogy, the fact that their names were written in heaven was something they could see, something they could perceive, something they could know. And so can we. Which is why in Ephesians 1, Paul calls the saints to praise God that He chose us in Jesus. And he goes on to explain how they know that, but, but he is confident that they can know that. And 1 Peter 1, Peter calls the church to rejoice that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through Jesus' resurrection, giving us the inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. These all speak of election which we can know, which we can perceive belongs to us individually. And it's a decree that is manifested by the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's the other thing we see here. I said there are two kinds of sources that assure us that we ourselves are elect. The first kind that's objective, we're going to talk about a little later, not tonight. But I'll give you the preview, and that's that it rests in God's promises. We are saved by believing that Jesus is the Savior who is sufficient for my needs. Because I believe in Jesus, because I trust in Him, therefore I am saved. That is God's promise. And if we believe that promise, well then we are saved. We are elect. Because God promised. Come to me and you will find rest for your souls. We can trust God. Because God will only save those who come to him and they will come to him only whom he draws 
So if we believe his promises, we can know that we're elect. But there's also a subjective way. And again, we'll talk about that objective way in, uh, at a later time. But there's also a subjective way that we can become confident that God has chosen us, has called us. And that's by the work of the Holy Spirit within us. There's so many ways that people seek assurance that they belong to God that are empty. They, they look for modern-day prophecy. They look for experiences. They look for warm, fuzzy feelings. That's not where it's found. Article 12 of our canons beautifully summarizes Scripture when it says that we gain assurance of our election in part by noticing in ourselves with spiritual joy and holy delight the unmistakable fruits of election pointed out in God's Word. What are these fruits of election which God's Word points out to us? Well, on the whole, they're the ways in which God always works in His people. Jesus said it quite plainly in Luke 10. God the Father has hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. It's not by studying or networking or gaining worldly knowledge that we come to God. It's by the gospel that he reveals to us. People that are incredibly smart, that understand quantum physics and string theory and all of this academic mumbo-jumbo, they miss the plain truths that little children grasp hold of. But the reason those little children take hold of it is because God reveals it to them. No one, Jesus says, knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. The wise, the understanding, the academically smart, they miss it because God has not revealed it to them. But our little two, three, four, five-year-olds who will stand up here later on and sing, they can get it because God reveals it to them. And that's the biggest fruit of all. Because we believe in Him, because we trust in Him, because we've become confident that the gospel is true and is truly for us, that's the first fruit of our election. That's the first fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in those who are chosen. And then He fleshes it out in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit are those who recognize their spiritual poverty. They've seen their sin and their misery and their foolishness and their darkness, and they recognize that there's nothing in them that is commendable. But Jesus says that for, their, for them who understand this, who see their poverty, for them is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed, he says, are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They mourn. Because they see the ugliness and the cost and the pain of their sin. They see what it costs them. They see how it grieves God. They see how it contradicts the purpose for which they were made. And God says that if you mourn over your sin, then you will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This world, in its rebelliousness, it says if you want something, you take hold of it. You grab hold of it by your strength, by your conviction, by your commitment. Jesus says no. You come as one who knows that you can't obtain what you most need. You come as one who is weak, 
seeking the strength of the only one who truly is strong. And if you do, you will inherit everything as a son of God. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they recognize that that is what God desires of us. That's what God created us for. That's what will allow us to reflect the Lord. And so we long for it. We hunger for it, recognizing that we can't obtain it on our own. And God promises that if we hunger and thirst for that, it will be given to us. We won't earn it. We won't manufacture it, but He will give it to us. Those are the internal fruits of election. That we're poor in spirit, we mourn, we are meek, and we hunger and thirst for righteousness. And if we're beginning to have that, all of which is created by the Holy Spirit within us, then it will begin to manifest itself externally. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Recognizing God's promise that He will deliver those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are meek, those who mourn. Recognizing that we need the mercy that only God can show, we'll begin to show mercy to those around us. Forgiving those who offend us. Loving those who are unlovable. And he says, if you're doing that, you will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Naturally, in our sin, in our corruption, we are anything but pure in heart. Our hearts are filled with corruption and darkness and ugliness. But more and more as we come to know Christ, our motives will change and become pure. We will long not for what will satisfy us in the moment, but for what will benefit the other eternally. And he says that if we are pure in heart, we will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Those who remain in their sin are not peacemakers. They hate God and they hate man. And they seek to obtain justice by their own manufacture. They will get even. They will be their own judge. But if we believe that Christ died to atone for our sins, that He suffered as the just punishment for our rebellion, then we will want to bring peace to others. We will want to pay the debt that will allow them to have peace. And in doing so, we will reflect our Heavenly Father. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. How is that a fruit of election, to be persecuted? Well, why are we persecuted? Jesus said in John 15, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have drawn you out of the world, therefore the world will hate you. If the world listened to me, if the world loved me, the world would love you. But because the world hated me, the world will hate you. The fact that the world hates us reveals that the world sees in us Christ. And that's why they persecute you. And so if they persecute you, if they slander you, you can be confident that yours is the kingdom of heaven. Understand, we don't see that fruit immediately or perfectly or without wavering as we come to Christ. It doesn't just happen. It's a process. 
that God begins within us as He teaches us increasingly to recognize and to hate our sin, as He teaches us increasingly to imitate the humility of Christ, as He teaches us more and more each day to long for the righteousness and holiness of our Savior, and as He leads us by His strength to reflect His character to a watching world, but more and more we will see that because the Holy Spirit who draws us to Christ invariably remains in us to produce these fruits. And as you begin to see that fruit, brothers and sisters, you will be forced to recognize, you must recognize, you didn't do that. You would not naturally seek to make peace. You would not naturally seek to show mercy. You would not of yourself mourn for your sin and long for righteousness and holiness. You wouldn't do it. And so recognizing that what you're doing, what you're becoming is not natural, you can see that that comes from the Lord and that that is evidence that you belong to Him. So beloved, seek after that fruit of the the Holy Spirit, that fruit of election within you. And if you don't see it, don't despair, but pray instead. Recognizing that even that act of praying, even that act of asking is evidence of your hunger and thirst for that which only God can give and evidence of election. And then trust Him whom you ask and you will receive it and you will begin seeing that fruit and then ask some more and you will see even more and give Him the glory because it's what He has done, not what you have done. Beloved, God's decree of election cannot be broken or revoked. Those whom He has chosen shall come to know and reflect God, and not even one will fail to obtain eternal life in the presence of God. Therefore, we should eagerly seek evidence of His election in us. And if we seek it, we will find. And we will rejoice, and He will receive the glory in us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we need and we long for the gift that only you can give. You sent your Son to make it possible. You send, even today, your Spirit to make it manifest in the hearts and lives of your people. Make it clear in our lives that we are yours that you're at work within us and that no one can snatch us from your hand. Give us that confidence, Lord, that we might enter into your presence with boldness and with joy, but also with deep humility, recognizing that our confidence, our hope, our life come only and entirely through Jesus, your Son. And it's in his name that we pray it. Amen.